All right, let's open our Bibles or navigate on your device to the book of Judges. We're in chapter 13. We're going to look at Judges chapter 13, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 25. If you have our app or access to the internet, uh, calvaryhanford.com, you can follow the notes live. Our notes are always up on Sunday morning uh, so that you can see what's happening there, too. So you can enhance your study of the Word, but... At any rate, we're in Judges 13. The topic, Manoah and his barren wife are promised a son, and they are instructed that he is to be a Nazarite from the womb. The title of our message, Make Womb for Samson. <laughs> Willie. Anyway, okay, let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. As always, Lord, ancient text about strange people and yet so applicable to our lives today. May your Holy Spirit take your word and bring it home. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I ran across a list of rules to live by. Here's a sampling that might help you. Number one, before you criticize someone, you should walk a mile in their shoes. That way, when you criticize them, you're a mile away and you have their shoes. Number two, if at first you don't succeed, skydiving is not for you. (laughs) Number three, give a man a fish and he will eat for a day. Teach him how to fish. He'll sit in a boat all day and drink beer. (laughs) And number four, if you lend someone $20 and never see that person again, it was probably worth it. I have a rule of life. I, I do. I have a rule of life and it's this. Just Google it. People ask me questions, and I appreciate that. I Google it and give them the answer. So just Google it. Winston Churchill, on the serious side now, was once asked his rule of life. His answer isn't what you'd expect from such a luminary. Or maybe it is if you know anything about him. Here's what he said. My rule of life prescribed as an absolute sacred right, smoking cigars and also the drinking of alcohol before, after, and if need be, during all meals... And in the intervals between them. You wonder why the war went on. Now why am I talking about rule of life? Well in our verses. The angel of the Lord appears to Mrs. Manoah. And tells her that she's going to become pregnant. And that her son will be the judge for Israel against the Philistines. He further tells her that her son will be a lifelong Nazarite. And that he is to live by that rule of life. His rule of life is that of a Nazarite. His work is to be a judge, clear. Now, Mrs. Manoah tells her husband about the encounter, but he wants to talk to the angel of the Lord himself. When he does, even though the angel has already told them, Manoah asks, what will be the boy's rule of life and his work? Seems redundant, at the very least, since the angel of the Lord had already been so specific. As I was thinking about the clear instruction and Manoah's dullness of hearing... I started to wonder if I might not be just as dense in my Christian life. Has the Lord given us a rule of life? And if so, what is our work? Those are good questions that will put us into this story. As we work through the verses, let's ask, have you discovered your rule of life and your work? And number two, have you delighted in your rule of life and your work? Let's take a look first of all in verses 1 through 14 at discovery. Now, I do get a lot of questions and requests to listen to or watch Bible studies. 
and, and I don't mind. People send me videos all the time about the end times or about the Bible or they want my review. Now, the trouble is they're always so long and it takes the speaker forever to reveal his point. Does that bother you? Hey, watch this video. It's like 90 minutes long and they don't say anything until the very end. And then sometimes they don't even say anything at the end. Facebook is famous for that. Watch this till the very end. Nothing happens at the very end. How about I start watching it at the end to see if I want to watch it at all. And so I don't want to do that. I don't want to lead you, leave you in needless suspense. So I'm going to tell you up front our rule of life. The Apostle Paul said this to the Galatians. Galatians 6, 14 through 16. God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What's the rule? It's that you and I are a new creation. Or as Paul puts it elsewhere, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. To expand that a little, what he's told us here in Galatians is that every Christian is crucified with Jesus Christ and then raised with him in a new creation who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and no longer bound to observe rites and rituals, diets and days. So the rule we walk according to, our rule of life, it's not a rule at all. It's to enjoy a relationship with Jesus by his indwelling spirit. And because we're in that relationship with Jesus, our work is not really work at all. It is to produce fruit, the fruit of the spirit, as we enjoy the Lord. One commentator called it the new creature rule, and he said this, By faith we are to reckon on the fact that we are new creatures in Jesus Christ, united with him in a wondrous union, partaking in his death and partaking in his resurrection life. By faith we are to reckon upon what God has already accomplished for us at the cross. Samson is going to be born into his rule of life and work. As most of you are aware, he pretty much ignored it, did his own thing, walking in the flesh rather than yielding to the empowering spirit. We can learn from Samson. There's a comparison I want to make. Like Samson, Christians are born again into our rule of life and our work. When you were born again, or if you're born again, you are born into a relationship with Jesus to produce fruit. It's thrust upon you. It's not something you then decide to do. It's who you are. And like Samson, we too can do our own thing, walking in the flesh rather than yielding to the indwelling spirit. We're a lot more like Samson than you ever thought, and the story just got a whole lot more interesting. And so verse 1, again, the children of the Lord are evil. <laughs> Let's start over. Again, the children of evil... fine again the children of israel did evil in the sight of the lord and the lord delivered them into the hand of the philistines for 40 years the evil they did has been previously explained in the book of judges they adopted the gods and the practices of the surrounding cultures they committed what amounted to spiritual adultery and so god would give them over to the people they wanted to imitate you want to be like a philistine be under the control of the philistines then 
And they would prove to be an especially tough opponent, one of the most difficult groups of people to overcome. Verse 2, now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. Children were an amazing blessing in that culture. If you didn't have a slew of them, uh, they thought that God was judging you, and so to be barren was terrible, a severe trial. It was a proverbial double whammy for this little family because they were oppressed by the Philistines and without children. The Manoahs must have wondered, why us? And God is going to answer that in a very powerful way. He was saving them for something grand. Verse 3, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. He shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. The angel of the Lord is a recurring character in the book of Judges. It is none other than Jesus appearing to the Israelites before his incarnation. And so I'm just going to call him Jesus from here on. So the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Jesus tells Mrs. Manoah she must eat like a Nazarite until her son is born because he will be a lifelong Nazarite. So before he's even conceived, she gets on the Nazarite diet so that he doesn't ever get contaminated, uh, supposedly, by other foods. So what is a Nazarite? Well, according to one source, and I quote, the Nazarite vow appears in Numbers chapter 6. By definition, the Hebrew word nazir means to be separated or consecrated. It's taken by individuals who have voluntarily dedicated themselves to God. The vow is a decision, action, and desire on the part of the people who desire is to yield themselves to God completely. The Nazarite vow has five features. It is voluntary, can be done by either men or women, it has a specific time frame, it has specific requirements and restrictions, and at its conclusion, a sacrifice is offered. Now, the specific requirements and restrictions are the ones we're most familiar with. Uh, they include these three, avoiding any grape product, including wine, which is later expanded to strong drink. And so nothing from the vine, not grape juice, not wine, not grapes, not uh, uh, raisins, nothing that would have grape in it. Uh, not cutting your hair, avoiding contact with a dead body. And you might think, well, that's an easy one, uh, but this would involve, uh, could involve family members. Uh, and funerals and things like that. So you were to have no contact. Might not be a problem for a short period of time, but this is a lifetime ban. Her son was going to be Israel's judge to, it says, begin to deliver them from the Philistines. That's only because Israel would not be completely free from them until the reign of King David. Uh, Samson would deliver them for a time, but these guys hung on until David uh, destroyed them. One thing to note before moving on is that the Nazarite vow was normally something you volunteered for, not something you were voluntold to do. And we'll return to that in a moment. Just keep that in mind. So the woman, verse 6, came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, or, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb until the day of his death. Mrs. Manoah wasn't sure if this person were a prophet or if it was the angel of the Lord. 
Either way, his words carried weight with her. She was sure about his promises and his instructions. There was no doubt about what was going to happen. She was a woman of faith. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what shall we do for the child who will be born. Now, on the plus side, Manoah believed his wife. He received the promise of a child, and he went straight to God in prayer. Those are good things. He isn't wondering if she's going to get pregnant. I mean, even Abraham and Sarah had a hard time with that. Sarah laughed when the angel told her that she was going to be pregnant. And Abraham was having a hard time as well. So Manoah is a very spiritual guy. We're going to say some things about him in terms of being dull. But it's not to take away from him. It's more to relate to him, as we'll see. So he believed his wife, received the promise, went straight to God in prayer. He's a spiritual guy. On the minus side, they had already been told what they shall do for the child. He keeps harping on that. He keeps asking about that over and over again. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, verse 9. And the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. Why not appear directly to Manoah? I don't know and we're not told. One thing it demonstrates for us is that this couple was like-minded or they worked hard at being like-minded. Mrs. Manoah knew her husband had prayed to see this man. So rather than talk with him herself, she ran to retrieve her husband that they might have a shared experience. If it was the angel of the Lord, or even if it was a prophet, these were rare sightings. This is, this is something that didn't happen all the time if you were an individual Israelite. And so for her to leave that meeting place to go get her husband spoke a lot about them wanting to share spiritual life. And, and so that's a good devotion for husbands and wives. So Manoah arose and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? His rule of life and his work could not have been put any plainer. He would be a lifelong Nazarite whose work was to judge Israel against the Philistines. So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. He doesn't bother to reiterate what he's already said and what they already know. He just emphasizes how important it is for the wife, before they get pregnant, to start on the Nazarite diet. So that her son, though not yet conceived, would be a Nazarite from the womb forward. Now I used the coined word voluntold a moment ago. One of the brothers used it here this week, and I'd never actually heard it before probably because I'm not in the military. Those of you guys who are in the military, you know you're always volunteered for something. I need volunteers, you, you, and you. And so you're actually voluntold what to do. Part of us immediately objects to the fact that Mrs. Manoa was told to go on a diet and that her son would be a lifelong Nazarite from womb to tomb without any personal choice. It seems restrictive. It seems to violate our free will. First of all, though, let's see if there were any other lifelong Nazarites and how they fared. Well, it turns out that there were two of them that we know of. One of them is in the Old Testament and one is in the New. I'll give you a minute to think 
who they might be, and then I'll tell you. All right, the Old Testament one is the prophet Samuel, lifelong Nazarite. The New Testament guy, John the Baptist. Thinking about those guys and what you know about them, did either of them complain ever to the Lord that they had been called to a lifetime Nazarite vow? No. In fact, Jesus said of John, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He had the singular honor of being the person who would announce that the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, had arrived. I guess what I'm getting at is this. If somehow God could have come to John before he was born and said, Hey, I have a job for you. You're going to be the person who announces that the Savior of the world promise in Genesis 3 is on the planet and on his way to the cross. You're going to be able to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How do I sign on for that? Just be a lifetime Nazarite for me. All right. I, I, that'd be a good trade-off, don't you think? To be filled with the Spirit from your mother's womb and to be able to have that ministry, one of the greatest ministries of all time. And so there's no complaining. Samuel and John didn't resent the vow because it was forced upon them. It was a blessing to have been so chosen by God in light of their work. It was a, a small thing. Now, most of us are already familiar with Samson's exploits. He, one by one, denies all of the restrictions of the Nazarite vow. Do we applaud him for that? Do we celebrate his free will to choose the flesh over the spirit? And so in the same breath, when we think... Uh, it's kind of weird being told what to do. We look at Samson and say, why don't you just do what you're told? And everything will be fine. We wish he had simply followed the plan. And we'd like to think, at least I'd like to think, I would have been a better Samson. That I would have done the things that God wanted done and been a much better deliverer. And of course, that's just me lying to myself. Now, once you and I are born again, your rule of life and your work, it is thrust upon you. Remember what we said our rule of life and our work was. The rule we walk according, our rule of life, not a rule really. It's to enjoy a relationship with Jesus by his indwelling spirit. And that means our work is not a work at all. It's to produce fruit, the fruit of the spirit, as we abide in the Lord and enjoy him. It sounds great, and it is, but simultaneously we find remaining within us a propensity to say no to these things and walk according to the flesh rather than to the spirit. When we choose the flesh, we are Samson, denying our rule of life and our work that are actually simple. We are to go on discovering that our best life is one lived in submission to God by yielding to his indwelling spirit. Our real freedom is in dying to self it's in picking up the cross on a daily basis. It's on reckoning ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Our free will is best exercised by surrendering to Jesus so he can produce fruit in and through our lives. Now, that brings us to delighting in that, verses 15 through 25. Again, Manoah knew his future son's rule of life and his work. Nevertheless, he asked the angel of the Lord in verse 12... What will be the boy's rule of life in his work? One reason we might propose for his question was that it all seemed too simple. Surely there must be more to this hero stuff than three prohibitions of the Nazarite vow. In Manoah's defense, the choosing of Samson was somewhat unique. No other judge had been chosen 
from the womb. And they had to wait until he grew up. And so it would be normal to think, I need to give him judge training. He needs to be Israeli special ops, right? Special forces. Surely there must be a school for judges where he can learn what to do. Or at least you think, let's take advantage of all of this time to prepare him. And so Manoah keeps saying, what should we do? You know, what should we do? And and the angels just, Jesus says, hey, I've already told you what to do. He's just going to keep the Nazarite vow, and I'm going to work in and through him. Jesus' instruction did not seem sufficient for the task. It was sufficient. All Samson needed to do was to live by it. This is maybe the most important thing I'm going to say today. If you are a Christian, the indwelling Holy Spirit who can constantly infill you is sufficient for you in every circumstance you find yourself in. He is sufficient for you right now because he is a person, not a force, and he doesn't have to be drummed up or appealed to in order to uh, reveal his power. You can say no to sin right now, empowered by him, and you can bring forth his fruit right now, empowered by him. Instead, we tend to go around asking God, what is my rule of life? What is my work? Oh, we don't put it that way, but that's what we're doing. Wander through the shelves of the average Christian bookstore, and you're going to find book after book that attempt to add to the simplicity of you being a new creature in Jesus Christ. Each of them is the author's attempt to bring you to a place of victory in your life. But to get there, you must do or be doing something a certain way. If by your willpower you can stick with their program, you might find the strength to overcome. And so, so many of the self-help Christian books, they mean well. But they start off from the position that you're, you can't do well unless you do these things. And then God will give you his spirit. And, and that was Manoah's error. He thought that there was more to do. Listen, you're an overcomer right now if you're a new creature. The Christian life is always a one-step program. You reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God, indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead. As we continue in our text, we're going to see two ways of approaching God, one that makes sense to Manoah and the one that is prescribed by God. First, in verse 15 and 16, Manoah says to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you, and we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. Manoah's first instinct was to cook a meal for the Lord. While in other passages of Scripture we might discuss our relationship to Jesus as supping with him, that's not what's happening here. Because the Lord says, I don't want to be detained. I don't want to have this supper with you. I think it's because... Manoah wanted to detain the Lord in order to get more and more clarification about his future son's rule of life and work. He just wasn't getting it. All of his questions had been adequately answered twice. He was still thinking there must be more. Instead of the long, drawn-out preparing of a meal and eating it, Jesus told Manoah he ought to just offer a sacrifice. It was quick and to the point. Do you know how long it took to make a meal in those days? He's talking about slaughtering an animal. And butchering it and then cooking it. Uh, I mean, this is like an all-day thing. This is like putting a brisket on and smoking it for 15 hours. And the Lord says, yeah, 
we're not, this isn't, you know, Revelation 3.20 where I'm knocking at the door and wanting you to sup. Uh, you're, you're just going to ask me over and over and over again how you're supposed to raise your son and I've already told you. Offer it to the Lord, Jesus said. Instead of doing something for the Lord by cooking him a meal, do something that acknowledges what the Lord has done for you. It's a basic principle of the new creature life that we ought to think more about what the Lord has done for us than what we must do for him. Verse 17, then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name uh, that when your words come to pass we may honor you? Manoah just couldn't quit thinking that there was something more he must do than follow a few simple instructions. Give him props for effort, but therein lies the problem. He would not simply rest in God's promises and provision. He thought he had to do something more. Okay, if you're not gonna tell me how to raise the kid, then at least tell me how we honor you. What kind of a building do we put up? What kind of a plaque? Uh, what kind of a temple? You know, what is it that we do for you uh, so that this will come to pass? And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Wonderful is variously translated as mysterious or beyond comprehension or secret. Jesus might be implying that Manoah need not have asked him his name because he had already enough evidence from their conversation to know who he was. I mean, wasn't everything Manoah had been told so full of wonder that only the Lord himself could bring it to pass? He had spoken not as a prophet for the Lord. He had spoken as the Lord. When we approach God's word, I don't think we're wondering if he inspired it. We receive it as his word. But we can think it is insufficient to address our circumstances. We sometimes want more than his wonderful word and his indwelling spirit. And we end up seeking them from secular sources. The biggest example of this in my Christian lifetime has been the fascination among Christians with embracing the philosophies of secular psychology. Godless principles of men like Freud and Jung and Skinner and Maslow are given Christian titles and then they're used to supposedly help believers work through their issues. Is that wonderful? Uh, it doesn't seem wonderful to me. It seems defeating. What you're telling people is that God can't help you. In fact, he, he has been no help to anyone until Sigmund Freud was born. And now that we understand psychology, God who discerns between the soul and the spirit and gets right down into your heart, now he is helped by these principles. Are these men Christians? Oh, far from it. They were godless, Christ-hating men. And yet we're, fa we're, we're doing nothing more than what Manoah did. Okay, you've told me this is sufficient, so what do I do? This is sufficient. This is what you do. No, there must be more. I need to do something for you. I need to do something more. There must be a program that I su submit to. And, and No, there's just these simple things. Then Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he did a wonderful thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went upward towards heaven from the altar that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. And when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. So goat and grain would have made a great meal, but it made for a better sacrifice. I have a devotional thought about this verse just to tuck away. I think sometimes we want to keep having meals when we ought to be on mission. For example, nothing wrong with more and more Bible study, but if you're already being well taught, it might be better to start an outreach to non-believers because they need it a lot more than we do. It's at least possible on some occasions that we want to eat when we ought to be feeding others. 
And by others, in this case, I mean ministry to non-believers. Verse 21, when the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Manoah is a little slow, spiritually speaking. Again, he's a great guy spiritually, not overly criticizing him, but he's, not, he's a little slow. He prayed and all, but it took him a while to see things. Uh, I would have known it was the angel of the Lord because he went up in a fire to heaven, not because the, he didn't come back. I mean, so he's, he's a little bit dull, but I totally relate to him. I don't know how many times Pam has had to explain to me what was really going on in a situation. I'll just be bloviating and pontificating, and she'll say, can I interrupt? <sighs> okay. That's not at all what's going on. Go, really? What's going on? And something completely... So I'm... Manoah should be my middle name. Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such things as this time. And so Manoah, he has a crisis of faith. Jesus had said, Your wife's going to get pregnant. She's going to have a son. He's going to be a Nazarite from womb to tomb. That's my promise. And then Manoah says, he's going to kill me. Well, he can't do any of that because he's made you this promise. And so Mrs. Manoah, very grounded, very solid in what's happening, even though she's the one that's going to become pregnant. She's got, she's got her mind in right things. And Manoah's just out there. She's a good biblical counselor. Nothing Manoah had done could nullify the promises Jesus had made to them. God's promises to you are true. You should embrace them, not wonder if you've somehow nullified them. The example I'd use is when a trial hits you, you immediately think you deserve it for something you've either done or not done. Yet you're told specifically to not think it's strange when a trial hits you. What happens when your trial hits you? Man, this is strange. Don't think it's strange because that's what the Bible says. Here's another way of applying this. The other morning, Greg Laurie's daily devotion, Job 1.8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. One of the brothers joked with me about the trials that were about to be unleashed. There's kind of an insider's joke among Christians that if you start studying the book of Job or hear messages on the book of Job, you, trials are just going to start flooding into your life. It's, it's, it's sort of almost a superstition. You don't really believe it, but you kind of do. And so you just steer clear of that book. But the truth is, after joking back and forth, we realize that the encouragement in that verse is actually wonderful. Because God is saying, hey, consider my servant Gene. What a great guy. And you're scratching your head thinking, yeah, if you knew Gene the way I know Gene, but the Lord brags on us. And it was because of that that he allowed Job to be tested. Because he knew what he was going to do in Job's life. And so we want to have this encouragement from the word by being in Jesus Christ. And so verse 24 and 5. So the woman bore a son and called, him named Sam, he called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. The Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahana Dan between Zorah and Eshtaal. So I ask you, was the Nazarite vow a duty or was it a delight? Well, sitting here, we would say it was a delight. Because the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. There was no downside to the restriction of the vow when you see the upside of having God's Spirit. In the New Testament, Paul's going to say, hey, you don't need to be under the influence of anything like wine or strong drink because what you have is better. So the idea is, yeah, hey, you know, I, I don't know when they revealed the Samson's son, 
the reason that you're not drinking Welch's or eating raisins like the other little Jewish boys is because you're a lifelong Nazarite. Oh, Dad, I want to eat a grape. It's not a negative thing. It's not that he couldn't eat a grape. It's that he was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's no comparison. Drink wine, eat a raisin, or have the indwelling Holy Spirit empowering my life. I don't know. Grapes can be really good. And so that's what's happening here. It's a delight. For us, there is no downside to saying no to sin by yielding to the indwelling spirit. It isn't a burden to be crucified with Jesus and share his resurrection life. It's what new creatures do. It's what we are as a new creation. Have you seen the recent Wonder Woman movie? The Amazon who is training her keeps defeating her in their practices. And she tells her, you are stronger than this. Until she finally realizes it and comes into her own. That's what we should tell each other as believers. You are stronger than this. That's, that's a great three-second counseling. You listen to a person. You hear their problem. You hear their situation. And somehow what you tell them from the word and by the spirit is going to amount to those words. You are stronger than this. Why? Because you're a new creature in Jesus Christ. God, the Holy Spirit, God himself, the person, lives inside of you. The power that rose Jesus from the dead lives inside you. And if you feel like you're waning in that power, you can ask for it and you receive a constant infilling. And so there's a sufficiency right now. And yet we want to keep asking, so, so what do I do? God says, no, it's, I'm sufficient for you. Walk with me, bear fruit. That's what you do. Yeah, but what, what do I do? You walk with me and you bear fruit. How do I do that? You walk with me and you bear fruit. It's like a one-track mind. Well, what can I do for you? Nothing, because I've already done everything for you. You are stronger than that.